it was there that I could observe the way they lived, and that I saw the poverty, the pollution, and the dirt far, very far away from the five stars hotels we were staying. Hey, welcome to Green Canvas. My name is Toby Carpenter. And this podcast is all about creative individuals helping to tackle the climate and environmental crisis through their work. We'll be talking to a wide range of creative practitioners, from designers working with sustainable materials to artists and photographers exploring global warming. We'll learn more about their work, how they use their skill sets for positive environmental change, and also what tips they have for you to utilize your own creativity and help the world build the sustainable future our planet needs. So stay tuned and I hope you enjoy and find Green Canvas useful. Our guest today is Valerie Leonard, a documentary photographer whose images often demonstrate the first-hand effect our environmental crisis is having on human communities across the world. Her mission to capture the dignity of men and women that live and work in difficult conditions has taken her to places like the open coal pits in northeast India, to the sulfur mines in Indonesia, and to the towering landfill sites nestled within the Himalayas. Her projects often become intimate portraits of the communities that live and work within environments like these and in doing so, end up providing a snapshot of the harmful impact our emissions and fossil fuel-driven economies are having on human life. If you'd like to check out some of Valerie Leonard's work before listening to our interview, we have a few links in the show description, which will take you straight to the web pages of some of the projects we speak about in this episode. And so without further ado, here's our conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. And so you're a photographer that travels all around the world, taking photos of environmental and human issues. And I wanted to start with asking you how you got started doing this and how would you describe your journey as a photographer up until now? Ever since I I was a kid, I always uh, wanted to be a, a photographer. Both of my parents were artists. My mother was a painter and my father was a successful photographer specialized in celebrities, fashion, and and jazz musicians. We all lived in Paris in the studio. My father, he was a very easy to get along with, and he was joyful, humble about about his work, and he, he never criticized anyone. But, you know, I was so impressed by him that I never dared to tell him or anyone that I wanted to be a photographer. I thought he was the only one to be able to judge my my photos. And I was convinced that my photos wouldn't be good enough for him and therefore good at all. So I decided to keep my feelings secret. I uh, graduated from university and after university, I started working for Air France as a flight attendant and I worked for 29 years. I was working on long hauls, so I traveled all around the world, and and I loved it. In 10 years ago, like in 2010, my father was 87 and still still working as a photographer. And one day, he called me and said that the doctors uh, had diagnosed a leukemia and told him that he had only six months to live. So it was a very big shock for me, and, and I realized that... That I had to to talk to him before he 
died. So I went to LA where he lived and I told him my love for photography and why I kept it secret. So he asked me to show him some photos I had taken and you know I didn't have any good pictures. I just had some photos I had taken during my trips with Air France. So he looked at them and he told me that I had the eye, that it was in my genes and that I, I had to follow my dreams and that I could be a photographer. So you can, you can imagine how relieved I, I, and happy I was. So when I came back to Paris, I bought a very nice camera and I went to Burma on my first professional trip as a freelance photographer. And that's when my father died, so he, he never saw my, my photos. So throughout your time as a, a flight attendant, were you always dreaming of taking photographs during your trips around the world, but something held you back in that process over that time? Yeah, I took pictures, but I, I didn't I didn't feel confident, you know, because I hadn't told anyone that I wanted to be a photographer. So I took pictures. I was always alone in the streets, meeting people, taking photographs, but keeping those photographs from, from, from myself. I Honestly, I kept it secret until my father died six months before he died. And luckily, I, I went to talk to him. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been a photographer at all. And why was it environmental issues and human issues that drew you to photography and has taken up your focus as a photographer? It's not, it was not environmental issues at, at first. It's more human issues. And that, that leads to environment issues, of course, because it's all linked all together. You know, when I was traveling as a flight attendant, I used to go out on the streets alone and get in touch with the people. And I would leave the crew in the hotel and I would meet them again in the evening, but I was by myself during the day. So it was there that I could observe the way they lived and that I saw the poverty, the pollution and the dirt far, very far away from the five stars hotels we were staying. And as I said, being interested in humans, we automatically become interested in, in the environment in which they live. So... I was alone. It was easier for me to meet people. And I saw their living conditions. Uh, no water, no electricity, garbage everywhere, no medical help. And I realized how lucky I was to live in a rich country. And actually, these people, they're just like us. You know, they, they just didn't have the chance to be born in the right place. And these people that you speak about in the photographs you were taking in these streets around the world, what places or regions are you referring to in particular? There are so many places because, you know, I've been everywhere. It was, it was a daily uh, experience all the time. Every time I used to go to Africa, all the countries in Africa, Madagascar. Madagascar was a big shock for me also for the poverty. And I remember we went one day with the crew that day. We went to have lunch in a remote village and we had a nice lunch with the crew. And I went outside because I wanted to smoke a cigarette. And then I saw this woman. She was holding a baby. And she was right there sitting on the, on the ground. She was not even wearing clothes. You know, she was wearing a kind of a bag made out of uh, raffia. I don't know how you say that. And, uh, and she was begging and she had nothing. And I, I sat down with her and I saw that the baby had scabies you know on in his eyes everywhere you don't die from scabies you know you can you just 
go to the pharmacy and you get the right medicine and you don't die. But the baby was dying. And, and I turned around and I cried because it was so, it was a big shock. And um, the difference with us having lunch inside the restaurant and seeing that outside. Outside, it was reality. And that's where it struck me. I left the crew and they went back to the hotel and I stayed there. Uh, the whole day and the evening. And I went back to the hotel very late that day. And I thought about it all the time. And I thought I should celebrate those people. I should photograph those people and and talk about them. Because people here, they don't even know they exist. They exist there. And so you're, you're obviously traveling around the world and you're interacting with lots of people who speak different languages so how do you, for example, go about making someone at ease or interacting with someone who doesn't speak the same language as you at all? Some countries, you know, I need to find a kind of an assistant, someone who can translate and be with me. But at the same time, what I do is I bring with me a notebook, a simple notebook, and I draw on it like Pictionary. I draw the sun, animals, people, emotions, and I ask them what it means and they tell me in their language. And I write it down in phonetic language for me. And they are way much more interested in my drawings than in my camera. So when I when I travel for the first 10 days, I don't take any pictures, nothing. I stay with the people, I get to know them, to be accepted. I do those drawings, I try to speak as much as I can their language and they love it because it's a mark of respect when you make the effort to try to speak their language, you know, and 10 days like that. After 10 days, I explain them what I want to do, what my work is, and I ask them for permission if I can photograph them and they always say yes and I ask them also to just ignore me just do what they do on the daily basis working living eating sleeping anything and I'm just here so I'm trying to be as discreet as I can I never take a flash I don't use a flash because the flash is very intrusive and even the the click of uh, the camera is intrusive and did you always use this process of using a notebook and using drawings to communicate from day one? Always, 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 always. And also, I carry a portable printer with me. And the first 10 days, I take portraits for them. And I print out the portraits and I give them the portraits. And they're very happy because they don't have they don't have any photos. They don't have the money to pay someone, a, a photographer, to have a photo. And usually, you know, what people do when they travel, they take photos of people and they show the photo on the camera itself. And it's very frustrating because then they leave. And those people stay there just with a memory of what they saw on the camera. So what I do is that I give them the pictures and they keep them. And I even buy the plastic film, that thing, you know, to cover, to protect the, the photo so they can keep it for a long time. And how do you normally choose the locations of where you want to go? How do you pick? How do you select? It's an everyday work, you know, every day I read the news, international news, you know, on Internet. 
when I have my coffee and I try to find subjects and things that, that are happening in the world. For me, it rings a bell because I've been to those countries. So I can see if I can go there because I already know the country, if it's feasible. And then I go deeper in my researches, you know, and I try to see if it's something very peculiar, something new. So, for example, what's the last thing you've read in the news recently that's inspired a project idea or is something you would like to work on in the future? It's a huge long-term project that I'm thinking about. It's about water, the war on water on this planet. We're lacking water with the climate change. So I, I'd like to go to, to India, you know, and in and, and Chennai, last, this year or last year, there was 55 or 50% less rainfall because of the climate change. So the city uh, went without rain for, for more than 200 days, which is uh, not normal. And uh, also I wanna go to Mexico. I mean, I don't know if you heard about the Coca-Cola company and there's a big factory, you know, and they are bottling bottles of uh, Coca-Cola and they need water for that. So now they're taking, they're sucking the wells dry there and forcing the, the residents to buy water now. They don't have any more water. And they, even the water is more expensive than a bottle of Coke. So there's a lot of cases of obesity uh, among children and people there because they drink more Coca-Cola than water. There's so many subjects pending on my computer because every day I write something else. So the water issue, I think it's a very long term. It's like the labors of Hercules. It's never ending. And so you mentioned the labors of Hercules, which is a, a theme that you follow. What is this theme? How would you describe it? And when did you start following it? When my father said that I could be a photographer, that I had to be a photographer, I came back to Paris and I bought my, my camera. So, and I went to Burma when my father died. So when I came back from Burma, I, I was not satisfied with my photos. I just had nice pictures of this beautiful country. Nothing more. Anyone could have done the same. So I realized that if I wanted to be a professional photographer, I had to have a theme, a guideline, a style, you know. So I asked Air France for some time off and I went to Mali and I went there alone as I always travel alone. So I rented a motorbike and uh, I went to Bamako, the capital, and I discovered a district where all the blacksmiths worked. And these men are recycling metal and are working hard all day long in the heat and dust for almost nothing at the end of the day. So that's where it struck me and that's, it came to me naturally. I had my theme, the labors of Hercules. And I decided to celebrate the, 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 the courage and uh, the dignity of uh, those who, who live and work in, in harsh conditions. And so you've done a variety of really interesting projects um, that we can talk about individually and it would, it would take us a, a really long time. But I wanted to zoom in on, on three of your projects because of their environmental themes. One of these is, is Black Hill. And would you be able to tell me, tell us a little bit about Black Hill and how did this project come about? I stumbled upon a, an article on the coal mines in India, in Jharkhand. Jharkhand is in the northeast of India. It's a huge uh, region, you know, Jharkhand. 
And so I called some friends of mine in Delhi and I told them about my project to go to Jharkhand. They told me it's a very dangerous place and there are no tourists, there's nobody. I'm not a tourist, I said. I want to go and document the, the mines and the people who work there. So I was very stubborn and I, I went to Jharkhand and there to understand the problem is like, think about that region 80 years ago. It was like a jungle, plants, trees, animals, and farmers, you know, farming. Back then, the government discovered there was coal in the underground. They decided to cut down the trees, everything, and, and open mines, underground mines. And to do so, you need dynamite, and you need to get rid of the trees. So the people who were living there were very poor, and the government didn't care about them, actually. So they stayed there. They had to become, to switch from farmers to miners. So now the land is dry. There's nothing that grows there. And it's filled up with mines, open cast mines, and fire. Because ever since like 80 years ago, the fire start burn, started burning in the underground and never stopped. I mean, never stopped. It's hell. So here and there, you have a hole with the fire coming out of the underground. And the people in slums are living among those holes and the fire burning and the carbon uh, dioxide uh, smoke. So it destroys everything. There's no water and there's 700,000 people living there with no running water, no electricity, no schools, nothing. And what do they do all day long? They, starting at like four o'clock in the morning or five, they go to the mines right next to their slums and they scavenge the, the coal. And they go barefoot with bags of coals to the city to sell it to the black market. And then when they're back by 8 o'clock in the morning, that's when the guards of the, the mine companies show up. When the guards are there, they come back to the mines and then they're, they work for the company. And they carry in baskets on their head, they carry the coal to load the trucks. And when you see the photos, you understand that exactly uh, the living condition, the horrible living condition there are in. Some photos, you can see the coal on their faces. There's one with a, it's a close-up of a young man, and he's covered in coal dust. But you have to imagine that what's on the skin, it's in his lungs. So the life expectancy is like about 50 to 55 years old. And there are no, no way for him to go to a hospital, see a doctor. There are no schools for the children. So a lot of uh, some some Indians were very shocked about this tragedy. And uh, the government decided to do something. They said, okay, we're going to build a town called, uh, this town is called Belgaria. It's like, I don't know, maybe 15 kilometers from there. And it's a brand new town, you know, with cheap buildings. And they said to the people living in the slums and working in a coal mine, you're going to live in Bulgaria. But in Bulgaria, there are no stores, no schools, no, no hospitals, nothing, and no jobs. So it was just to, they wanted to get rid of them, to get rid of the problem and get rid of the scandal. So remove the people, there's no more scandal. But they, those people, they have no jobs. So they decided to stay and they're still there every day. And is there any sign or, or do you know of any sign that this situation is improving? Nothing has changed. 
well, I haven't been there like 20 years ago. I've been there a few years ago, but I still talk to my friends and it's still the same. And the toxic air that, that surrounds these mines, how did it smell? Well, imagine that you buy some coal and try to burn it and stay on top of the smoke. It's like that everywhere, every day. And the ground is hot because of the fire, the underground fire. And the slums are on top of the mines, you know. And sometimes it collapses, a house collapses and falls inside a hole with a fire and people die. But these people are what we call untouchables. There was a woman, a young woman, her name is Babli, and she was pregnant, and she already had two children. And I tried to help her, and I called my friends in New Delhi, and I told them, listen, do you have a job for her and her husband? Because uh, the situation here is, is so horrible for everyone. I want to help at least one of them. And they said, okay, yeah, we have a job for them. And uh, she's going to clean our house, and the husband is going to take care of a horse and our cows and the ducks. And we're going to send the children to school. So it was heaven. So I, I decided to buy a train ticket with Babli and her husband and the children. I had to take a photo of me holding the tickets. I had to make a statement that I bought the ticket, that I found a job for them. I had to take a photo of me and them showing it was really me and my passport. And the day they left... It took us like three days to organize everything. The day they left, I was not there. And they went and, and I asked my assistant to assist them to take them to the train station. When they got onto the train, the police came because they recognized right away they were untouchable. And they said, you have to get down the train. You're not allowed to stay here. So my assistant showed the police all the photos I had taken and the proof that I had found a job for them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to take the train and travel to New Delhi. So you can imagine, this is just an example. So imagine that 700,000 people living there. So I don't think it has changed, but I haven't gone there in a few years now. But I talked to my friends and they told me it's still the same. And do you think you will go back there again anytime I'd love to go. I'd love to go back to so many places and to uh, see my friends because every time, you know, when you stay a month and a half or two months in a place, there's a bond with the people you stay with because I don't stay in hotels. I live with them. So I want to go back there. I want to go not to take photographs, just to see them and be with them and bring them some stuff they need. I want to go there, but uh, I've been traveling in a year now, you know. And another of your projects, Cash for Trash, saw you photograph these mountains of trash in Kathmandu Valley in, in Nepal. Could you talk a bit about this project too? When I went to Nepal, the first thing you think about when you think about Kathmandu is the Himalayas and the beauty of uh, the scenery there. But you don't think, you cannot Im imagine the pollution. And Kathmandu is one of the most polluted city I've ever seen and crowded, noisy. There's no sidewalks to walk. You have to find your own way through the cars and motorcycles just to walk from one place to another, just for 20 meters. And I was on my motorcycle with an assistant. We were just traveling around Kathmandu and in the suburbs, we found a place, the landfill. There was a landfill. And then we went to see the people working in the landfill. And we had, I had to ask for permission because the company that ran the landfill wouldn't allow me to take any pictures. They're not proud of what's going on there. 
So it took a lot of uh, patience to have the permission to be there. So the people who work there explained me that every day, every day, there's a, a truck that comes in the morning with 40 tons of trash. 40 tons of trash in that place. It's in on the hills. It's it's a beautiful place, and they dump the trash and they covered the trash with they scrap what they do is they have a tractor that scraps off the dirt from the the mountain and they cover the trash with it and then again another other trucks they come every hour and they dump their trash there and they cover it again and when the hill is too high when they cannot go any higher they change and they move to another place problem is that the trash is there and when the rain falls the water goes through it and drains the the chemicals and the toxic toxicity into the groundwater and the rivers and the farmers who have goats and sheep the goats and sheep drink the water from the river and they're intoxicated so it's not the thing we think about when we, when we think about Kathmandu Kathmandu you know think about uh, the Buddhists, the music and the architecture and the temples, you know, and the beautiful Himalayas, but we don't know this exists. Actually, the landfills like that, they exist everywhere and people are not aware of that. Are there any images or photographs that you took that stick out to you when you think about this project? When you think about this project, what, what images come first to mind? It's uh, invisible. At first glance, you just see trash. And then you notice there's the human being trying to climb onto the trash to pick some plastic bags. And I'm, I'm telling you, the stench, the smell is unbearable. And they have no running water and they're paid almost nothing. But this is the only job they can have. And how close by to the, the landfill do these people live? It's like uh, one kilometer. It's nothing. Or... Sometimes it's 200 meters. There, all the houses are scattered. And another of your projects, Java in Indonesia. I'm interested here a bit more about this project too. There is a volcano called the Kawaijen. It's a sulfur active volcano. And it's like 2,500, 600 high meters. And at the top, there is a lake inside the volcano. The lake is not water. It's the most acidic uh, lake in the world. The pH is one. So you put your finger in there and, and it's burned. You know, it melts. Inside the caldera, you know, on the sides of the caldera, the volcano emits some smokes. Actually, the miners, they placed ceramic pipes to, to channel the, the smoke from the sulfur. And inside the pipes, what the smoke does, it condenses into liquid sulfur. And at the end, the sulfur, when it comes out from the, the pipes, it solidifies into hard sulfur. And these men, what they do with rods, you know, metallic uh, bars, they break pieces of sulfur manually, and then they carry that those pieces, those chunks of sulfur in their baskets down the volcano to sell the sulfur. Thing is that they make more money than if they were farmers. That's why they do that, that dangerous job. But they make like maybe $5 a day which is a lot there, but it's very dangerous because it's toxic. You have sulfuric acid 
and you smell that and it smells like a rotten egg but you can't open your your eyes you can't when you breathe in it burns your lung and and your throat and your eyes too you cry all the time and they do that every day so i decided to meet them and and stay with them and i stayed with them for three weeks because when you climb up to the, the that volcano there are no roads you, you walk right and uh 600 meters down the crater there is a checkpoint with like two three little houses wooden houses no electricity no water and the miners sleep there and every day they climb up and they go down the caldera to work and to collect that sulfur and i would climb up with them climb down the volcano inside and stay there and take photographs but it was very very difficult very dangerous and because i'm very clumsy i fall all the time and um, i had bought a mask back you know in paris but i couldn't use it I tried to use it, but the mask was too big, so I couldn't look inside my camera, you know. So I had to remove the mask. These men, they don't have the money. Yet. They don't have enough money to buy a mask. They just cover their mouth with a cloth or even, uh, you know, fake masks, but it doesn't work. And they're used to it. And they all smoke <laughs> every day. Not a good combination. No. And did you did you feel the effects of the the smoke and the fumes every single time you left the site? Did the the effects of the fumes stay with you physically at all? I didn't leave the site. I was staying there for three weeks, so I I never left the the, the site. It was six hundred meters down the volcano on the sides of the volcano. That's where I was staying for three weeks. And uh, actually, after three weeks both cameras broke down because the smoke and the acid went inside the components, you know, of the cameras and I couldn't click anymore. I was cough, coughing and my eyes were burning all the time. But when I left after a week, I was just fine. And, and amongst these, these projects that you've done and even the ones that we haven't spoken about, what would you say are the most shocking things that you've witnessed or seen throughout your, your time over the last years as a photographer? The most shocking, uh, it was black hell, really, because uh, it's not like, like in the volcano, there are maybe 300 men working, but in black hell, there's 700,000 people who are stuck, trapped in, in hell there. And uh, this was very shocking, seeing um, these women carrying the children, even babies, to the site to work. And those babies working already by playing with coal and try to mimic their mothers, like breaking the coal and putting the coal into the baskets. And many times I wanted to cry. And when I was crying, I would leave because I couldn't show my tears to these people. Which I, I have a lot of respect for them. I, I couldn't do that. Uh, so... In front of them, you know, I was joking, playing hide and seek with the children, but I couldn't show my tears. No. So it was very hard. And so would you say that Black Hill is perhaps the project that has had the biggest impact on you and your outlook towards life and photography? Well, my last project had a big impact on me. I went to Indonesia, to Java again, but on the other side of Java, I went there three times actually for a month and a half. And it's the last project. It's called The Guardians of the Forbidden Forest. It's about the Badui people. It's a community that lives in the jungle in the south 
west of Java. This community has been living in, in an area like it's 5,000 square hectares they have there. And they, they've been living there for more than 600 years now. And the Badui were animists. They believe in uh, the water, the nature, the rivers, the, the trees, the animals. There's a soul everywhere. And they are convinced that they are the guardians of the cosmic balance of our planet. So they decided to set some rules, very strict rules, 600 strict rules to stay away from the modern world and to protect themselves and to protect nature, most of all. So among those rules, electricity is banned. Schools are banned from the government, I mean. They told me that what is short must not be lengthened and what is long should not be shortened. That's a very simple way to put it, but that means that they shouldn't change anything. Anything that was here was here for a reason. So when they, when they go in the woods and they cut a tree to build a house, they plant a tree that very same day because nothing has to be changed. And their land, the forest, remained the same. The, the nature is intact, has been intact for more than, than 500 years. And it's, it's very interesting to live with them because they have this notion of um, respecting the nature and the notion of uh, the time that's passing. They take the time. They're not in a hurry, of course. They have a way to dress also. The Badui that are respecting the rules, like 100% respecting rules, are dressed in white and black because white is purity. And the other Badui that are respecting the rules, let's say 80% of the rules, are dressed in blue and black. That's it. They walk barefoot. They um, meet the government once a year at the Seba ceremony and they, they tell them to respect nature. They tell them you have all the things they should do or shouldn't do about nature, about the planet, because they are still convinced, you know, that they're guardians of the cosmic balance. Actually, the, the government and Indonesian people respect them and think that they have mystical powers. So they're kind of afraid of them and they respect them. That's why they kept their land intact. And that's why the government doesn't kick them out from the land just to uh, try to find some uh, petrol or whatever, you know, in their land. That's what they're doing in um, for the other tribes called the Orang and Sumatra, you know, for their palm oil. So they're cutting down the jungle and they're burning the jungle with the animals inside also. And Orang Rimba, that's the name of the tribe. They don't care about the Orang Rimba because they don't think that they have mystical powers. And for example, one day there was a uh, oil company that sent some engineers there find if there were uh, there was some petrol or something else in the ground and the chiefs of the Badui there are only three chiefs the big ones came to see them and told them tomorrow you're not coming back and they never came back and so your the stories and the projects that you immerse yourself in and you take photos of they're extremely moving projects even to hear you talk about all of these stories now and not even with the photographs in front of me so i i wanted to ask is there anything in particular that you'd like viewers of your work to walk away with when you set out to do these projects maybe they discover new people and they realize that other people live differently and have hard lives and they should 
consider that. Maybe it's a way to open their eyes and their heart to others. That's what I'd like them to walk away with. And in terms of the environmental crisis and the climate crisis, what do you think are the best ways of inspiring people to commit time, energy and money into helping environmental causes? If we had more documentaries on TV, uh, human documentaries on TV, instead of those TV reality shows that are easier to watch, we should have more documentaries on internet, on media, to show reality, the reality of this world, and air them, not a, uh, in the evening, very late, but air them on TV, broadcast them on TV during the day or at eight so that people would stumble on it and say, oh, yeah, that's interesting. I should watch it. But instead of that, it's the opposite. But I'm very confident and positive. I think that more and more now people are more aware of what's going on in the world and the environment and those crises we're going through. And they're, they're more interested. So I'm, I'm getting more positive and, and confident about the future. And also, I'd give an advice for those who want to travel as an amateur photographer. Travel alone. Don't travel with someone. Always travel alone because then people won't see you as a tourist, won't be afraid of you, and people will open their doors more easily. You you get in touch with them very quickly when you're alone. When you're with someone else, they see you as a couple. For example, you go to a restaurant. Right next to you, there's this man alone on his, at his table. And you talk to him more e easily, you know, when he's alone. If he's talking with a friend, you're not going to talk to him. So travel alone and travel slowly. Stay as long as you can at the same place. You don't have to travel all around the country. You stay in one place to be accepted, to get to know the people and, and ask them everything. Ask them questions. Try to take your time. And are there any great books about the environment, climate or nature that have particularly helped you with your work? The wonderful photographer Salgado, and I admire his work and his commitment. He has, uh, there's a big book called Genesis. It's a wonderful book. And also... I, I watch a lot of lectures on the net also. So there's a photographer, his name is Matthias Klum, and he's a filmmaker and he creates art projects and thematics connected to environmental issues. Wonderful. You can listen to the, his lectures. He's a wonderful photographer. And because we've covered so much in this interview and it's been so great to listen and hear about these stories and experiences that you have, before we wrap up, is there anything I've missed or any last words you'd like to say to listeners? No, I think we're fine. I think that's fine. Okay. Well, I just want to say thank you once again. It was so interesting to hear your stories firsthand. You have so many amazing stories. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing more of your work in the future. Thank you. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of Green Canvas. In two weeks, we'll be back with the next episode, where we'll be talking to the sculptor and underwater photographer, Jason DeCaris Taylor. Jason's sculptures aren't like anything you've probably ever seen before. You won't find him in a town square, a famous high street, or the offices of a high-flying corporate skyscraper. In fact, you won't find him anywhere on the ground at all. Instead, you'll find him submerged into the ocean, where they become new habitats for marine life and act as artificial reefs, helping underwater creatures and plants to thrive. 
In the meantime, if you think this is a podcast a friend of yours will enjoy, we would love for you to share it with them or leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us know what you think and others to find the show. And feel free to get in touch with us anytime at hello at greencanvaspodcast.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the episode or any recommendations and questions you may have for future guests. Thank you again, and I hope you have a great day.